as I mentioned, we're going to be in Colossians 4. So if you have your Bible, please open it up. I've asked Jed to come up and read. He's going to be reading from Colossians 4, verses 2 through 18. So we're going to wrap it up. We've got a nice little chunk here. So go ahead, brother. All right, yeah, if you'd stand with us as we read God's Word. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 985. So Colossians 4, verse 2 through 18. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he, was, he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the churches of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You may be seated. Please pray pray with me. Father in heaven, it is a joy uh, to open up your word here this morning. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and how you use that servant um, in a mighty way to pen your words to your church. And Lord, as, as your word is in fact a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, I pray that your word would be unfolded here this morning and that it would give light to your people. So God, as I, as I often pray, would the words of my mouth, would the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. All right. So it's Father's Day. I love being a dad. I have three boys, they're ages four, three, and 18 months, real tight, real, real close together. And every night before bed, uh, Michelle or I will tell a story to our oldest two, Solomon and Jude. We always tell them some sort of bedtime story. And uh, recently, I've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. And so, the main character in these bedtime stories that I tell Solomon and Jude has been Aslan. And Aslan has been on the move for a number of weeks now. 
And uh, anytime I say the word Aslan, their eyes immediately light up. And it's so cute. It's awesome. So one night, I was retelling the story, almost word for word from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of when the four children, Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy, if you know the story, uh, they're asking Mr. and Mrs. Beaver more about Aslan. So uh, they, they ask him, they say, what is he like? They said, well, he's the great king. And then I think it was Susan who said, well, is he a man? And they say, of course not. Of course he's not a man. He's a lion. <laughs> and Solomon and Jude, they're just eyes wide open. And then uh, I think it was Lucy who then says, uh, so is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's a good king. And then as Solomon and Jude just wide-eyed, I give them the ultimate cliffhanger that they hate. And I say, the end. And they're like, no, daddy, no. I want Aslan to show up. I said, he will, son, maybe tomorrow night. And then we pray and we sing a song and we kiss him goodnight. And and it's so cute. Um, But I love good stories. I love good stories like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia, because they communicate something to us. They communicate not only heroes who make great sacrifices for the better of others, but they draw us in. Great stories draw us in as we see good always triumphing over evil. I really do think words and communication are some of the greatest gifts that God has ever given us. And that's what we're going to look at here in our passage this morning in Colossians chapter 4. We're going to see how, uh, for the Christian, how they use their words to the glory of God. So as we've been walking through this journey of Colossians, we're coming to the end. We're coming to the tail end here. And Paul, I'll remind you, is writing this letter to a church that he's never been to. He did not plant this church. Many of the people, he's never met them. But he gives them instructions. He uses his words to build them up. And he teaches them who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished on behalf of his church. And then Paul also uses his words to warn, to warn this church of the false teaching that has come in. And then he tells them Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's a summarization, but I think that's what the whole book of Colossians is about. And then he gives them some final instructions. And final instructions on what it means to live like a Christian. And then we come to chapter 4. And he gives some parting instructions and some parting greetings. And that's what we're going to look at here today. So I've got three stops for us on our roadmap. Three stops for us this morning. And it's all about how we use our words. How we use our words towards God in prayer. How we use our words towards outsiders in mission and evangelism, and how we use our words towards insiders, to those in the Christian community to build up and to continue to labor on in the gospel. So that's where we'll be going here today. My first point this morning, we use our words towards God, towards God in prayer. And this is in verses two through four. Paul gives two imperatives or commands here. The first imperative, in verse 2, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, abounding in thanksgiving. And it begs the question, why does he give this imperative right here? 
why at the tail end of the Christian household section, mothers or fathers, children, husbands, wives, slaves, master, why does he give it right here? And I really think it's because prayer can be difficult. Prayer can be a labor. It takes energy, devoted time, deliberate thought. That's why it's called a spiritual discipline. This discipline for me personally is arguably the most hardest in my Christian life. But when I continue steadfastly, it's arguably the most fruitful. And it's as if he's saying to all of these people in Colossae to continue in prayer and dependence towards their Father in heaven. Prayer can be difficult, but it doesn't have to be. It really is quite simple. It's as if you're having a conversation with a dad. A good dad listens, is present, has a genuine desire to be with his children. He speaks warning into his children's life, but he also speaks grace. A good dad is wise. And some of you had a dad like this growing up who you enjoyed talking to. And a lot of us as fathers, we are striving to be a dad like that. But for some of you, you did not have this kind of dad. And on Father's Day, a day like today, it can actually be a sense of resentment because you never had a dad like this. But here's the good news. When we come to Jesus, we get his dad. His heavenly father becomes our heavenly father, infinitely wise, always present, will never let us down, and always wants to hear from us. And that's why Paul's saying, continue steadfastly in prayer. This father wants to have a conversation with us. And so for the Colossians, Paul urges them to remain watchful in their prayer, to remain watchful. And what this means is to be alert, to be awake, eager for that father in heaven to answer those prayers. But many of you, you see a command like this and it just really gets you down because you've been laboring in prayer for a long time. You've remained steadfast and you want this circumstance to change or you desire for God to change this person's heart so badly. And the beauty of prayer, the beauty of the call here to be watchful is to keep an eye on how God is answering that prayer. Often, we are the ones that are changed as we continue to labor in prayer. And God uses our perseverance to line up our will with his will. And we're shaped, we're molded, and we're changed. And oftentimes, we look back and we see how God has been faithful to answer that prayer. We know that God is listening to our prayers because Jesus went to the cross And because Jesus went to the cross, he provided the way back to God the Father. And we now have a direct access, direct line to the throne of grace. And all we have to do is pray to him, is pray to him. Prayer can be so simple, but we are to be watchful in it. So one way that that I tend to be watchful in prayer is through a prayer journal. Oftentimes, I'm short on words, and I don't know what exactly to pray. And that's where a prayer journal can actually be very helpful. As I literally push the pen forward, and my thoughts become words that are a prayer to God, written down on paper. 
And what else is helpful about a prayer journal is that I look back upon it, and I look back and see how God has been faithful to answer those prayers, how he has shaped and molded me as I continued steadfastly in that prayer. But when he answers it, it causes me to abound in thanksgiving. It causes me to abound in thanksgiving. And that's what Paul is instructing the Colossians here, to not just ask for things from God, but to be watchful and to look and see how he's answering those prayers and to be thankful for that. So the other imperative that Paul gives here on prayer in verses 3 and 4, he gives towards the, he gives an imperative toward the communication of the gospel. Paul reminds the Colossians that he's in prison and he's asking for prayer, not to change his circumstances, not to open up the prison door so he can walk free, but even amidst his circumstances, he wants to proclaim the gospel. He wants to be used right where he's at for the glory of God. And notice that it is God who opens up the door, and that's why he's praying. That's why he asked for this prayer request, that God would open a door, that he can declare the mystery of Christ clearly which is how he ought to speak. That mystery of Christ has been a theme throughout Colossians. Real simply, it's God's plan of redemption, to draw a rebellious people who are sinful, opposed to him, back to himself through the life, death, resurrection, finished work of Christ. And when someone comes to faith, Christ dwells within him. That is the mystery of Christ that Paul wants to explain, that he wants to proclaim clearly regardless of his circumstances. And as a pastor and proclaimer of God's word, that's what I desire as well. And we as a pastoral team desire as well. Would you pray for us? Many of you prayed for me this week. And I want to say thank you. It worked. It worked as I was preparing this message. Thank you for laboring over prayers that I might proclaim God's word clearly. And I would ask, Would you continue to pray for us as each week we desire to open God's word, to explain the meaning of it and bring it to his people? So please put us on your prayer list. If you don't have a prayer list, that'd be a good place to start. So continue steadfastly in prayer, especially towards us as your leaders, as we labor over God's word week in and week out. Amen? Amen. All right. So our second stop here this morning is that we use our words to the glory of God towards outsiders, towards outsiders. Verse five says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. So outsiders, Paul here is referring to those people who don't know Jesus, who have yet to put their faith in Christ. And he's instructing the insiders, that is the church, to use wisdom in their manner of life, in their conduct towards these outsiders. So wisdom. Wisdom, real simply, is knowledge applied. God has given his people the knowledge of who he is, why we are here, what has gone wrong with this broken world around us, and where to find hope to fix it. God has given us that knowledge, and we are to share that with the outsiders around us. So wherever you find yourself, whether it's at work, 
whether it's in your neighborhood, wherever you find yourself, you better believe that God has put you there to walk wise around these outsiders, to make an impact in their life for Jesus. We have a saying around here that we live on mission where we live, work, and play. Our lives are to commend the gospel. One way that we commend the gospel is with our good works in how we love people, how we serve people, how we seek their welfare, how we meet their needs, bear burdens. Simply, we adorn the gospel as we have sincere relationships with these outsiders. And guys, I, by God's grace, I think this is something that we do extremely well here at The Crossing. Ever since the very beginning, when I was a very young Christian, I was attracted to this church because of the desire to impact non-Christians. Eight years later, we're still going strong. This past Easter, we had 400 people here. 400 people. It shattered any previous record of attendance that we had. Now, the next week, we were back down to our normal 250, and you got to love American Christianity. But I really think that figure, that number has significance in all of you because all of you have been intentional to not only share your life with people, but to invite them to church, to invite them to hear the gospel and to see firsthand the community that has impacted all of you firsthand. So as you've adorned the gospel, people accepted that invitation to come but the work is not done. The work is not finished. The goal is not to have simply large numbers here on a Sunday morning. That is not the goal. Our mission is to make disciples. We want to invest more into the outsiders' lives, into these outsiders' lives, in hope that they become insiders, in hope that they put their faith in Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here about making the best use of our time. There's much to distract us, much to distract us that's going on here inside the church, but also in the world. And so we are to make the best use of our time with those on the outside. We've been sent on a mission, on a mission to bring glory, not to ourselves, not to the crossing, but to our great God in heaven. So let's leverage our time well to the glory of God. One way that I've seen this played out in the life of our community is a few years ago, our life group had a split night, a guy's night and a gal's night. And the gals, they headed to Old Town. They went to the Chocolate Cafe. And as they were there, they were sharing prayer requests with each other. And they began to be very vulnerable. And they were sharing some difficult things going on in their lives. And one of the ladies that was there, at the time, she was an outsider to our Christian community. And her eyes were open to the reality of the brokenness that we still battle with week in and week out as we walk with God. That we live in this tension of the already, but not yet. That we've already been saved. That we've already been redeemed, but not yet fully. And this broken world around us affects us. And so this gal, she sees the brokenness in these other ladies' lives. They were sharing tough things, whether it was depression or an eating disorder or battling suicidal thoughts with a family member. I mean, there were some difficult things shared. 
And by God's grace, that gal eventually came to Christ because she was pointed that night to a source of hope. And that when this gal walked through two really hard trials, when the burden was too much for her to bear, she gave it to Jesus. And the community around us shared the gospel with her. And it was so beautiful. And it was so awesome. And it's just a testimony to our people being intentional, making the best use of their time even when outsiders were present. So, my encouragement for you guys this morning is don't just adorn the gospel. Don't just serve people with good deeds. We need that. That often is the front door, the entry door into building a relationship with someone. But don't just adorn the gospel. Articulate it. Articulate the gospel. Do you know how to articulate the gospel? And what I'm asking there is, do you know the content of the gospel? One way that I tend to share the gospel is through the grid of God, man, Christ response. God who is creator, holy, man who is created in his image, but has rebelled. And then God sent Jesus to bear the burden for our sin, to be crushed so that we would never be crushed. And then you elicit a response. Do you believe in that? Have you ever thought about that? God-man-Christ response. It's an incredible way, simple way to share the gospel. Another way that we can use our words to share the gospel, to articulate the gospel, is by using God's word. I love to memorize scripture so that when a time comes forth, I can share the gospel with someone. That's where Romans 5.8 is such a huge verse. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you can go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's the rebellious part. But the Lord laid on him, that is on Christ, the iniquity of us all. Sharing the gospel does not have to be overly complex. It does not have to be this big theological treaty. It can simply be sharing God, man, Christ response in a variety of ways. But note that the manner in which we share the gospel with our words will make Jesus attractive. Verse 6 says, let your speech always be gracious. Always be gracious, season with salt. Notice he doesn't say, let your speech always be gracious, season with coarse sandpaper. But he says with salt. And what this means is speaking in an interesting and stimulating way. Paul is echoing Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he says that you are the salt of the earth. And salt is such an interesting metaphor. And if you think about it with our food, if you put too much salt on food, nobody's going to want that. It becomes bitter and harsh and pretty gross. But if you don't have enough salt on food, it becomes bland. But salt really brings out the life in food, especially guacamole. (laughs) And it's the same with us, though. It's the same with our manner of life, but also with our words. If we have too much salt, if we're just telling people that they're sinners who are going to hell, and we just pound that and never share the love of Christ, that he 
took that punishment that we deserve, if we just hammer them, hammer them, hammer them, that's that bitter, that's that harshness. There's an element of truth to that, but the way in which we share it will either attract people in, will either be salty and beautiful, or it will detract them. Similarly, if we don't have enough salt, if our words or our manner of life does not commend the gospel, if, our, if outsiders look at our lives and they see that there's really no difference in how we use our, li- how we use our words and how we live our lives, then it's going to be that blandness. And we're going to blend into the world around us and Christ is not going to be attractive to them. So we are to use our words to the glory of God as we are distinct from the world. Always being gracious, full of grace, but also full of truth. And we learn to season our speech with salt as we are enamored by grace. The direct understanding of grace in our lives overflows into the lives of others. And our gracious, salty speech has a purpose. Paul says here, so that you may know how to answer each person. Answer each person, whether it's the indifferent religious person or the skeptic or maybe even the hostile person to the gospel or the religious cult leader or cult follower. We are to be full of grace and full of truth with our words. But here's the good news. (laughs) You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be able to answer every single objection to the faith. I used to think that, and I used to study apologetics, and I used to try to find out what people's defeater beliefs are, and what I found out is that I don't need to have all those answers. I just need to be well-versed in grace. I need to understand how the gospel applies to a variety of situations in my life and in their life, and more often than not, I have an answer for people. I have an answer of what Jesus has done for them and for me. But occasionally, somebody will ask me a question or they'll bring something up and I don't have an answer. (laughs) And what I tell them is I commend them and I say, hey, that's a great point. And I really do think the gospel and God's word, the Bible speaks into that. But let me go do some research and let me get back to you on that one. And I will have an answer for you. And the intentionality of me not only showing humility, but also having the fortitude to go look up that answer and bring it back to them communicates grace to people. It shows that we care for them enough to follow up with them. And so you guys can do that as well. Look for gospel opportunities to adorn the gospel as well as articulate it. Invite people into the Christian community and share the grace of God that has been shown to us. You are the means of God's grace in non-believers' lives, in outsiders' lives. I encourage you, be that means of grace. Step in and share the gospel with people. All right. Our third and final stop here this morning is that we are to use our words towards insiders, towards the community around us, especially those laboring with us in the gospel. So starting in verse 7, we've got this huge long chunk. It's final greetings and encouragement that Paul gives to his co-laborers. He mentions 
10 individuals, 10 people that are working shoulder to shoulder with him to advance the gospel into the nations. And what's unique about this list of co-labors is that it's very detailed. He takes deliberate time to address a variety of people. And it begs the question, why? Why does he do this? If you look at Ephesians, the sister letter to Colossians, he mentions one person (laughs) in two sentences. But here he takes his time. And so the reason why I think he does this, why he goes into all this detail, is because Paul's never been to this church. Paul's never met a number of these people, and he takes his time to pastorally care for these folks, to shepherd this flock of God through his words. He uses his words to build up these co-labors. So let's look at a handful of them. We're not going to look at all of them, but let's look at a handful of them. Tychicus, the first one mentioned there. Um, We might call him Ticklish or Ty for short. Um, I've noticed that no one in our church has named their kiddo Tychicus yet, but uh, you could call him Ty if you want to. So this guy, Tychicus, he's a rock star. He's mentioned just five times in the New Testament. But notice how Paul describes him in verse 7. He says he is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. Paul sends this brother to give a personal update on how Paul and the other co-laborers, community around him, are doing while they're in prison. But Paul sends Tychicus with a major, major role. He has the responsibility to hand-deliver this letter. This letter, as well as the letter to the Ephesians, as well as uh, Philemon. And this is a huge deal. Because without Tychicus, we don't have this letter. God used this man. God used this man well before FedEx or Amazon Prime or UPS or any of that stuff. Tychicus was used by God. But notice that last description that Paul uses here. He says, fellow servant. Guys, Paul is an apostle. (laughs) He wrote the majority of not the majority, but a large chunk of the New Testament. But here, he puts himself on the same playing field as Tychicus. The same playing field as he says he's a fellow servant. They are both servants seeking to make disciples. Seeking the spiritual good of those around him. And it didn't matter who was writing the New Testament or hand-delivering it. They're fellow servants, fellow servants of the king. It's amazing. It's amazing. All right, let's look at another one. Onesimus. Onesimus. Some of you know the background here, but if you don't, that's okay. Onesimus was, in fact, a slave. And he ran away from his owner, Philemon, and then he comes to Paul. Paul shares the gospel with him, and his life is transformed. And this is... This picture that we have here of Onesimus in the New Testament is a picture of the transformation that someone goes through when they give their life to Christ. In the letter of Philemon, Paul describes Onesimus and what he was like before he came to Christ. Paul describes him as useless, 
that he had wronged Philemon, that he had deserted him. And most likely, he stole money from Philemon so that he could fund his journey to freedom. But also in the letter to Philemon, Paul describes Onesimus now, who was once useless, as very useful to Paul, but also very useful to Philemon. Paul's described as a father to this son, Onesimus. And he wants them to continue to co-labor side by side in the gospel, but he knows that it's better for Onesimus and for Philemon for Onesimus to go back. Not as a bondservant, but as a brother. And you see, this would have been a big gamble for Onesimus to come back to the city of Colossae. It would have been a big gamble because fugitive slaves who were often caught were punished by death. Everyone in the town, as well as the church, would have known that he was a slave who ran. So Onesimus, he's taking a huge gamble by showing back up on Philemon's doorstep. But that's what happens when you're transformed by the gospel. Your identity is changed. You humble yourself, and you do things that the world thinks is crazy that might even cost you your life. But you do it for the glory of God. Onesimus' story is incredible. Incredible. Okay, last one. Mark. This guy is known as John Mark throughout the New Testament, specifically Acts 15. Uh, We see that Mark departs from Paul and Barnabas when they were on a previous missionary journey. And this story of Mark and Paul is one of the great stories of restoration in relationships that we see in the New Testament. So once Mark decided to depart from Paul and Barnabas on this missionary journey, he wanted back on the team, but Paul wouldn't have any of it. He was cut. But Barnabas, he goes to bat for him. He's my cousin. He's good. We should take him with us. But Paul, he's not going to have any of, any of it. So Paul and Barnabas, co-laborers in the gospel, have such a sharp disagreement that they actually go in separate ways. And we're kind of left in the dark of what happens to Mark in the New Testament until we come to this passage here in Colossians 4. And we see that instructions had previously been given about Mark. Those instructions were probably a warning that he cannot be trusted. But what we see here now is that something has changed. Paul has changed. And most likely, Mark has changed as well. Most likely, what had happened was that Mark and Paul got together, confessed sin, repented, extended forgiveness, and relationship in their, and their relationship was restored. We see this in 2 Timothy when Paul writes again about Mark, and he says to Timothy, at the end of his life, bring Mark to me. He is very useful to me for ministry. Humility, repentance, forgiveness always must proceed restoration in a relationship. Could you imagine how Mark must have felt when he heard the words that were written about him? How encouraging that would have been to him? 
Stories like this give me hope in a church like ours because I know that there are relationships that need to be restored here in this body. And we can do it through humility, through repentance, and through extending forgiveness, the same forgiveness that we've been extended through Christ. So there's seven more people, nuggets of gold, in these, in these closing greetings. And let me just encourage you, when you read your Bible, don't just blow over these sections, but really dive in. Try to understand the context, the background of what's going on in these individuals. They made the Bible for a reason. They might not be the celebrity that Paul is or Peter, but God used them in a big way. So we could spend the rest of the morning unpacking these folks, but I'm hungry. It's Father's Day, so let me try to wrap this thing up. So I once heard a poem of a violin being auctioned off to its highest bidder. This violin was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer didn't really think it was worth his time as it was going to sell for a lousy $3. So that auctioneer begins calling $3 once, $3 twice, going for three, and then a gray-haired man steps up, wipes the dust off the violin, tightens its string, picks up the bow, and begins to play. And the melody that came forth was as sweet as an angel sings. Let me read to you the rest of this poem from Myra Brooks Welch. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a loud voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin as he held it up with the bow? A thousand dollars? Who will make it two? Two thousand? Who will make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going, going gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried, We do not quite understand what changed its worth. Swiftly came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life without tune, and battered and scarred with sin, is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless cloud, crowd much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once, going twice, he is going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. The touch of the master's hand. Guys, these people, these individuals mentioned at the end of Colossians were in fact touched by the master's hands, by the master's hand. Their lives were changed, changed for the glory of God, and they can be an inspiration for all of us. And there's many folks in our lives who have been yet, who have yet to be touched by the master's hand, who we desire to see and know this master, this master who is a good master, a master who eternally existed before the world began, the Word, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. He is a good master because he laid down his life for his people. Jesus Christ is the most pure form of communication that this world 
has ever seen. And we see how deep the Father's love for us through Christ. Jesus came so that his message and his words would become our message and our words. He wants to transform us through his word, and he wants to transform others as we proclaim that word to them. And as we pray, let us open our mouths, faithfully bear witness to Christ for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a good father, one who is always there for us, always present, and one that we know that is good because you sent your son Jesus. And Lord, as there's many individuals in our lives who have yet to be touched by the master's hand, God, I ask, would you draw them to yourself? Would you open the door so that we can not only proclaim the gospel to them, but invite them to walk through that door? Jesus, you are the door, and no one comes to the Father except through you. And so, God, I ask, would you use our church in a mighty way this summer as we are on mission, as we are rubbing shoulders with outsiders to bear witness to you? And would you also use us to use our words to build up the co-laborers around us? We trust you, Lord Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.